Okay, we'll get started. Today's topic is waves. So uh, waves are very important uh, in physics, in particular for you for the next semester or so. You'll be dealing a lot with waves. We'll start by just describing mechanical waves. They're the easiest ones to visualize. They'll be able to demonstrate some of the parameters of waves and some of their behavior. Um, and then in chapter 16, we'll go on to talk about sound, which is a type of wave. So everything that we learn in chapter 15 will be directly applied in chapter 16. And then if you go on to take physics 51, you'll be dealing with waves in the form of electromagnetic waves. Take physics 52, you'll be dealing with light waves. So the uh, fundamentals of all of those start right here in chapter 15. Before we get into new material, uh, a couple of announcements. Um, homework this week, since it's Thanksgiving, you don't have homework due on Sunday. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news is there is still homework to do. It just won't be due until the following Sunday. Okay, So you'll have homework this week that's on chapter 15. You'll also have homework next week on chapter 16. It's all bundled up into one assignment. It's due on December 7th. Okay, so that assignment is twice as long. It's worth twice as many points as a normal assignment. So you have two weeks to do it. Um, just giving you that warning, if you see that there's no homework due this week and then you wait until the last minute next week, you may find out that it's uh, more work than you had anticipated. Okay. Um, let's see, I'm from Detroit, so if, uh, if the Lions win on Thanksgiving Day, um, I'll extend that due date by a week. Um, I don't think there's a very good chance of that, though. OK, so we're going to deal with waves. Waves, starting very mathematically, are a solution to this expression. That's called the wave equation. Uh, that may have some notation in it you haven't seen before. So I just put that up there because when you do come across some of this notation, mainly this, uh, this symbol right here in your calculus class, sometimes it's nice to have seen that it actually applies somewhere in the real world. Has anyone seen that symbol before? It's, yeah, it's the, well, so normally if, if it didn't have this squared, we'd read that as the gradient. Um, when it's squared, this is called the Laplacian, but uh, what this means is the spatial derivative. And in one dimension, like if we're measuring something moving along, or some motion along x, the spatial derivative is just the derivative with respect to x. Okay, um, the reason physicists sometimes write expressions with this, this form rather than the differential form is that um, this is completely general and doesn't, it doesn't matter what coordinate system you use, whether you're measuring something along x, y, or z, this is always the second derivative along that direction. And uh, more importantly, it doesn't matter whether you use Cartesian coordinates or some other coordinate system. Uh, this expression is invariant. I just point that out uh, as an introduction so when you see it later on, you'll know that it applies somewhere. We're going to use this form of the wave equation today. So another symbol that may or may not be familiar to you is this one right here. 
That's the Greek letter psi. So you may recognize it more from sweatshirts and uh, fraternities and sororities than you do from uh, anything else yet. But uh, this psi you'll probably see in chemistry as the wave equation or as the solution to the wave equation. So we're going to use it as well as the variable or the parameter that has some wave propagating along it. And that wave could be a wave in anything. I mean, a, what's an example of something that travels as a wave? Water. Okay, so for example, the height of the water might be what this variable stands for, in which case we'd probably call it something like H or Y. What else has waves in it? Sound is a wave. It's uh, usually described by the changes in the pressure. So we could put in like a P there to represent pressure. So this is just a very general, just some parameter that I'm plugging in. And when we have specific applications, we'll use different, different variables here and here. Okay, so the wave equation says that the second spatial derivative is proportional to the second time derivative of a function. Um, we've seen already a differential equation kind of like this when we dealt with simple harmonic motion. We said that a function that had a second derivative that was proportional to the function was the sinusoidal function, so sines or cosines. And indeed, if we write a trial solution that looks like this, where there's a sine or a cosine wave that's a function of x and t, when we take the second derivative with respect to x, we're going to get something that's proportional to this function. When we take the second derivative with respect to t, we're going to get something that's proportional to this function. So it's conceivable that those two sides would equal. And let's see what happens when we take those derivatives. Um, when we take the first derivative of this with respect to x, this k comes on the outside. The derivative of cosine of a quantity is minus sine. We get minus ka times sine of the argument. And when I take the second derivative, the derivative of sine is cosine, and another factor of k comes out. So I get minus k squared a times cosine kx minus omega t plus phi. And now I can recognize this term right here is my original function. And I can write the left-hand side of this equation is minus k squared times the original function. I can do a similar thing on the right side. And I will just quote the result. 1 over v squared, this is the right side, times the second derivative with respect to time. When I take the two derivatives with respect to time, I get two omegas coming out instead of two k's. So this is the right side. This is the left side. 
And in order for those two things to equal each other, let me set those equal to each other. Minus k squared psi is equal to minus omega squared over v squared psi. The minus signs cancel. The psi's cancel. And what I find is that I can solve for v. v squared is omega squared over k squared, or v equals omega over k. So this v is just a parameter in this mathematical equation. We can interpret the physical meaning of that by looking at this solution. Okay, so let's look at that solution. Okay, first of all, let's imagine the different things that psi could be. We talked about this a little bit. It could be uh, the displacement of water, the pressure in a fluid. It could be an electromagnetic field. The units on it come from whatever A is. A is the amplitude. Right, so cosine is a function. It's just going to give us a number with no units. So whatever the units are in A, those are the units on psi. If it's the displacement of a string, that might have units of centimeters. If it's the pressure in a fluid, it might have units of pascals. If it's an electric field, it might be volts per meter. And now some of the terms in this function we've seen before. We had a very similar function that described the motion of something in simple harmonic motion. This A in front we call the amplitude, the size of the oscillations. And that's the case for a wave, too. So let me generate a wave so that we have something that we can, something concrete we can look at. All right, so here's a slinky. Um, I can generate a wave. Oh, that didn't work. Let me hook that on better. If I shake this, if I shake one end, the displacement of the end propagates down the slinky as a wave. Right, so if I lift this end up, that upwards displacement will propagate down the slinky. You notice when it gets to the end, it comes back, that wave. So the wave itself is an upwards displacement of the slinky. Um, the amplitude is how far I displace it from equilibrium. So my hand, if I just move my hand up and down, back and forth, this point is undergoing simple harmonic motion up and down. But it's producing a wave that propagates outward. not very easy to demonstrate with a finite length slinky. It's a little easier here. If I do it in this virtual demonstration. So here's a point that's going up and down in simple harmonic motion. It has some amplitude, so its maximum excursion from this equilibrium point is where this dotted line is. And the string, which is attached to that point, is 
affected by it and produces these pulses that propagate down the string and, in this case, out the window. That string is infinite. So the pulses keep going indefinitely. The size of the wave is called the amplitude, and it's determined by the position of that line. Let me turn off the damping so that the amplitude doesn't change. Okay, so you can see that everywhere, the maximum excursion of a point on this string is given by the maximum excursion of the point that started it. That's the amplitude. A couple of other parameters. There's a certain length that it takes this pattern on the string to repeat. We call that the wavelength. And there's a certain time it takes any given point to oscillate through one full cycle. So we can watch this point here that's right on the, uh, the dotted line. And if I, if I hit play, we'll see this go up and then back down. And the time it takes it to do that is one period. It might be easier if you follow one of these little green dots. It goes up, down, up, down. Right? So if you're following this green dot, the time it takes it to go up and down is a period. That period is the time it takes for this argument to increase by 2 pi. Okay, so we say that omega, just like in simple harmonic motion, is 2 pi over a period. The wavelength is the distance it takes this pattern to repeat. So if we say the distance x increases by one wavelength, we want the argument of this function to increase by 2 pi, meaning k times a wavelength should equal 2 pi, or k should be 2 pi over a wavelength. Use the Greek letter lambda to denote a wavelength. Okay, So that's right here. k is 2 pi over lambda. So just like omega, we called the, the angular frequency before. That's a temporal frequency. It's how many times per second the system oscillates. Actually, it's how many times in 6.28 seconds, in 2 pi seconds, that the system oscillates. K is a spatial frequency. It's how many times in 6.28 meters, in 2 pi meters, the wave cycles through a full cycle. Okay, so that's amplitude, k, omega. And just like simple harmonic motion, there can be some initial phase of the wave. So at x equals 0 and t equals 0, if the displacement is not a maximum, then there's some term here you need to mathematically make this function less than its maximum value. Okay, so... Two of the important properties are the period, which is how long it takes in time for the system to repeat. So if you follow a point on the wave as a function of time, it's going to oscillate with this sinusoidal pattern. If you take a snapshot of the string with a wave on it, you see this similar sinusoidal pattern. You describe this distance as a wavelength. 
So one wavelength is the distance that the wave travels in one period. Okay, so the velocity of a wave is the distance traveled by the time it takes it to do that. So let's consider it traveling one wavelength. It takes one period to do that. We can say velocity is lambda over t. And if we make a couple substitutions, lambda is 2 pi over k, and t is 2 pi over omega. So if we substitute those in, we can say that v is omega over k. And that's this shouldn't be squared. That's what we started with from the mathematical the mathematical evaluation of the wave function that we did over here, we ended up with v equals omega over k. We hadn't said what v was yet. v was just a parameter in the wave equation. And now we can see why that parameter is called v. It's the velocity of the wave. So over here we've shown that that's how far it travels in a given time, or the speed of the wave. We can also use the fact that t is 1 over the frequency to write the velocity as lambda s. So that's another form that you see it in quite frequently. So Here's a very generic form of a solution to the wave equation. I haven't plugged anything specific in for the amplitude, spatial frequency, or the angular frequency. I, when I plug in a number, I could conceivably plug in a negative number here, or a negative number here, or a negative number there. But by convention, we always use positive numbers to describe the parameters of waves. We describe the amplitude as being positive. the spatial frequency and the temporal frequency as being positive quantities as well. So you can write the wave equation like this. You could also write it like this. This form down here, the only thing that's different is the sign on the omega. So doing this is equivalent to just plugging in a negative, sign, negative value for the omega. If you plug in a negative value for omega, what that changes is the direction of the speed of the wave the direction that the wave is going. Okay, and we can see that by looking at these equations, or these uh, expressions. If we want to follow a wave as it's moving along, if you think about surfing, that's what you do. Right? A surfboard, if it follows along with the wave, the wave will propel it towards the beach. So if you imagine this wave represents some wave on the ocean, and you want to know which direction it's going, one way you could find that out is if you could measure the direction of a surfboard 
that was caught up in the wave. And essentially, what that means is finding a point on the wave that's at a certain amplitude, and as time evolves, follow that point. So what that means in terms of this mathematical expression is if this, the argument of this function, if we constrain that to be a constant, then the cosine of that constant will always be the same times the amplitude will give me a, co a constant value for the height of the wave. And the way this can be a constant is as time increases, the position has to increase as well. Right? So if time increases and x increases as well, then the increase in this term, which is negative, can be offset by the increase in this term. And I can get a, a constant height on the wave moving in the plus x direction as time goes forward. In this form, as time increases, this term gets bigger, and here this is a positive term. So in order for the argument to stay constant, this term would have to get more negative. So what would that mean in terms of the direction the wave is traveling? Traveling in the plus x direction or the minus x direction? Show of hands, plus x direction. Show of hands, minus x direction. Okay, so it's got to move in the minus x direction. Right? X has got to be getting more and more negative or, or smaller if it's positive. In order for this term to get smaller to compensate for the increase in that term. So that's how we can figure out whether a wave is going forwards or backwards. So let's look at some waves. Um, there's different types of waves. This, in fact, is why I have the slinky. Um, I think I need a volunteer to help me demonstrate the slinky. Hanaro? It's an easy job. You just have to hold the end. Hold it on the, uh, on the desk. Let's see if we can... Uh, Put it kind of in the center of the desk. Okay, so uh, a couple types of waves. One is called a transverse wave. This is what a water wave is. The motion of the, the slinky is going to be transverse or perpendicular to the direction that the wave is going. So I'm going to send a wave towards Hanaro, but the displacement of the slinky is going to be sideways. So like, like that. So I can only send, send short pulses. Because if I do anything more than that, the wave keeps bouncing back and forth and it's hard to see. So that's a transverse wave. Uh, there's another type of wave called a longitudinal wave. And that's where the motion of the slinky is going to be in the direction of propagation. Right? So that's, that's that. That's a little maybe harder to visualize or to see, but if you look, you should be able to see like a little pulse of the slinky rungs getting closer together. And then you can have a combination of the two, right? So if I move my hand both in and out and back and forth, I can get both waves traveling. Thanks. So 
Probably the most uh, famous, sort of well-known example of a longitudinal wave is sound. Sound is uh, pressure fluctuations in air or in a fluid. So here's a fluid. Let these little dots represent particles in the fluid or, or molecules, if you like. If this speaker over here vibrates, it's going to vibrate the air, and the molecules here are going to bump into their neighbor, and there's going to be a, a cascading collision that, that causes uh, pressure variations to propagate down the tube. And the motion of those particles are in the direction of motion of the sound. Um, transverse waves are water waves, or at least water waves have a transverse component. That's what you see rising up out of the, above the, uh, the steady state position of the water surface. Um, water waves can also, though, have a longitudinal component. And in fact, most water waves are, have both. So if you imagine a tank of water here, and this, this wall blocks the water, if you suddenly move the wall in either direction, uh, you necessarily push the molecules in the direction that the wave is going to propagate, but there's nowhere for them to go, so they also have to rise up. And so the net effect is that if you follow a particular molecule, it's going to go back and forth and up and down. So you have a little bit of both. And an example of a purely transverse wave is light, or electromagnetic waves, which you'll learn about in Physics 51. So one of the important uh, properties of waves, at least of waves in a linear material, and every material you're going to deal with in your undergraduate career is a linear material. Waves obey the principle of superposition in a linear material. And what that means is if you have more than one wave that collide, essentially, Imagine two water waves. Let's say I take a tank of water and I, I throw a stone in right here and I throw a stone in right here. I get ripples that propagate outwards. If I follow that to the point where they intersect, the waves don't bounce off of each other like a particle might. They just kind of go right through each other. And at the point where they intersect, the displacement of the surface of the water is going to be the sum of what it would be from either wave individually. So this picture of a couple of waves on a string demonstrates this. Let's look at this triangular pulse right here that is moving from right to left, denoted by that uh, magenta arrow. So here's the pulse drawn in magenta. And then there's sort of an inverted pulse that's drawn here in cyan that's moving left to right. Okay, so when those pulses, before those pulses meet, um, I just have the two separate pulses on the string. And then as they meet, what the string does is it basically takes the shape that would be defined by the sum of those two pulses. So here I've got the magenta pulse pulling the string up, the cyan pulse pulling the string down. The net effect is the string has much less displacement. And then of course, once they pass each other, I again have two independent pulses. That's the principle of superposition. Uh, it doesn't seem like anything particularly interesting here, but it will give rise to what we call interference patterns 
that affect all sorts of things, from the ability to measure very precisely using light to causing one spot on your couch to be better for listening to surround sound music than the other. Right, so let's do an example. Let's consider these two pulses. And let's ask what the rope will look like as these two pulses intersect. So we have a short, wide pulse and a tall, narrow pulse. And if I draw those independently at the same location, this is what they would look like. So if the net displacement of the rope is going to be the sum of those two things, I will draw that in yellow. It'll look kind of like this. At the moment they intersect. And then after that, this uh, tall pulse is going to keep going to the right. The short and wide pulse is going to keep going to the left. They don't interact at all. So we need to understand this property of superposition in order to describe what happens when we have boundaries on our string or on our material that the wave's propagating in. And so an example of a boundary is when the string ends. Okay, so let me take this tube. Right, this tube is essentially, it's, this is a rope. And it's long, but it doesn't go on forever. If I create a pulse on this rope, it travels from your left to right, but when it gets to the end of the rope, it can't keep going. Right? There's nothing for it to go on into, and so we saw it come back. Okay? And if we can understand both what happens at the boundary and this effect called superposition, we can start to understand why we'll be able to get things called standing waves that look like this. Okay, certain patterns in the rope that occur when I have waves going back and forth between two boundaries. Okay, these standing waves are what cause music from a guitar or a piano. Uh, they cause the sound from a pipe organ or a woodwind instrument. And so we'll deal with them both here for strings. We'll deal with them in, uh, in the next chapter when we talk about sound. Okay, so let's first consider what happens uh, when a pulse arrives at the end of a rope that's fixed in position. It's fixed, so that point can't be displaced. So we've got this energy in this pulse. It takes some work to lift the string up and throw it back down. So there's some energy in the pulse. It's propagating along with the pulse. It gets to this point. It can't displace the end. So where does that energy go? Yes. So in order for the energy to go somewhere, 
there has to be a reflected wave. And so that's what happens. Uh, there will be a reflected wave. And in order for all that energy to be contained in the reflected wave, the reflected wave has to have the same amplitude. Yeah, well, there's something called damping. It's basically friction between the molecules of the rope or the water or whatever the wave is propagating in. And that uh, eventually takes away the energy. So you see this uh, demonstration here. There's this adjustable damping. Right. Let me turn that way up. Here's what you're describing. As the wave's propagating, it's getting less and less. The amplitude is decreasing. That's because the energy is being dissipated by friction between, most likely between the uh, molecules rubbing over each other in the rope. Okay, so we're going to neglect damping and deal with waves that could propagate indefinitely if there wasn't some boundary to constrain them. Okay, so if the reflected wave has to carry all away all the energy, it has to have the same amplitude. It has to be the same size wave to carry the same amount of energy. And at this point, then, what we'll have is a forwards propagating wave and a backwards propagating wave. The only way those two things can add up to be zero, which they have to be at this boundary condition, is if they're in different directions. Right? So if an upwards pulse hits this boundary, it should reflect with a downwards pulse. Let's see if that's what really happens. Okay, so I'll try to generate a quick short pulse. I'll do it upwards and we'll see how it gets reflected. So do you see it reflect? I'll do it, yeah, I'll do it a couple more times. So the upwards pulse reflects downwards. And as a result, when you add up an upwards wave and a downwards wave at this point, they add up to zero. And that's how the, the boundary condition can be met. So let's go back to that demo. And let's... Uh, Stop it. Uh, let's put a fixed end in place of that window so that uh, this point in the string cannot move. Let's send a pulse. And that's, okay, so that's what we saw. Let's see what happens when we send in a oscillating pulse. Now we're getting one of those standing waves that I talked about. It's growing in amplitude. This is called resonance. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in a, in a moment. Um, let's just send in a quick pulse. Let's see it reflect. Okay. What if I have a loose end? A loose end means this rope doesn't keep going on, so there's no way the energy can be carried further than the end, but the end is not constrained in position. 
So imagine a ring on a pole that's free to slide up and down. So, well, so again, we have to have the energy reflected because it can't transfer beyond this point. So we have to have a reflected pulse with the same amplitude in order to carry the same amount of energy. But this point's not constrained to be have zero amplitude. So rather than the reflected pulse having the opposite sign, we may find that it has the same sign. Let's see that. Now this left end is fixed in place, which is why this, the, the wave inverts on the left reflection from the left side. But you see when it reflects from this free end, the sign of the disturbance stays the same. The reflected wave has the same sign. So I can really only demonstrate this uh, well virtually. It's, it's very hard to set up this condition where the end is free. Okay, so let's consider what happens when we have an incoming wave that's oscillating at a regular frequency. So it's a periodic wave. It's described, it's not a pulse like what we were showing there, but it's a, it's a sinusoidal wave. I'm forming a wave by shaking the string up and down. It goes down to the end of the string and it reflects from a clamp at the end. A clamp at the end means the reflected wave is the same or inverted? It's inverted. So the reflected wave will be inverted. Let's use this functional form. Let's work through the math of what's going to happen. We've already seen in the, di in the uh, demo what happens. What happened in that situation? That was the situation that led to the resonance, where the, the oscillations got bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's work through the math. Yeah, we keep adding energy. There's nowhere for the energy to go. So if we had turned on the damping, then the energy would have it wouldn't have continually gotten bigger. Okay, so a forwards going wave. If I'm talking about the height of a string, I might want to call this the height. Call it y. With a forwards going wave. The height is a function of x and t. The function of position and time is equal to some amplitude. Times cosine kx minus omega t plus phi. How would I write the reflected wave? Yeah plus omega t. So this is for the reflected wave. So let's say um, here's my string. Let me call this point x equals 0, the point where it reflects from. Okay, so the the wave is going to come from the left 
hit this point, and then reflect. And the reason I call this x equals 0, it's going to make the next step a little easier. Um, I'm going to constrain the displacement to be 0 at x equals 0. Okay, So when I add these two things up, I'm going to require that if I evaluate it at 0, I get 0. Okay, So adding those up at 0, at 0 I can just cross off that term. A cosine minus omega t plus phi, that's from the forwards going wave. The backwards going wave just has plus omega t. This is the, I should say, this is the amplitude of the reflected wave, whereas this is the amplitude of the incident wave. So one possibility is that let's see, if phi equals 0 and ar equals minus a, then this will add up to be 0. Okay, so. I can write I can set that phi not equal to 0 and this the amplitude of the reflected wave I can call minus a So this is what we said that the reflected wave would have be inverted would have an amplitude or a, a value that's always uh, negative of what the incident wave was Okay, so if those are my incident and reflected waves, the total field is going to be the sum of, let me explicitly call this the incident wave and the reflected wave. factor out an A and write this like that. And now I'm going to use a trig identity. The trig identity is a cosine, let's call it U, um, minus cosine V. equals minus 2 sine u plus v over 2 times sine u minus v over 2. So that's not something that um, I'm expecting you to know off the top of your head, but certainly something you can find in a, a math textbook that will let us simplify the solution and put it into a form that makes more intuitive sense to us.
So I will get minus 2a. This minus 2 comes from here. And then I have sine times the average value of what's in parentheses. So the average of kx minus omega t and kx plus omega t is just kx. times the sine of the difference between these divided by 2. So I have uh, the kx here minus the kx here. Those cancel. I have minus omega t here plus omega t there. That gives me minus 2 omega t divided by 2. And now sine of minus omega t is just minus sine of plus omega t. I can take that minus sign and use it to cancel this. And I can get a solution of this form for the displacement of any point on the string at any point along the string at any time t. So what's nice about this form is the position is separated from the time. And so, for example, I can ask, what is the string doing at x equals 0? If I plug in 0, this term is 0. And therefore, the height of the string is 0 at any time at this end. And so, in fact, we can plot this term. What this term is, this term is an oscillation in time. Then this term is the amplitude of that oscillation. Okay, so the amount that a point on the string is going to oscillate depends on where it is on the string. So if we plot that, if I call this the uh, y max of x, I plot y max of x versus x. And over here is x equals 0, so I'm starting from negative. I know it's 0 at x equals 0. And it's a sine function. So it's going to look like this. So there's a point here where the amplitude of this oscillation is a maximum, as well as a point right here. That's where the, the oscillation of the string is going to be a maximum. Then there's a point right there, a point right there, and a point right there where the amplitude of the oscillation, this term here, is 0. So those points evidently don't oscillate at all. Okay, so we could see that when I set up a standing wave like this. Now you can see at the end, the amplitude of the oscillation of the, the rope is 0. 
But there's two points in between me and the end where the amplitude is also zero, even though they're physically not constrained by being attached to something. Okay, and then in between those points, the maximum, the amplitude was, was uh, a maximum. Okay, so these points are called nodes. And the points of maximum displacement are called anti-nodes. So this little drawing that I did, this plot was the amplitude of the oscillation. If this, if I, um, if I evaluate at a time where sine omega t is equal to 1, this would be like taking a snapshot of the string. Right? But as time evolves, this is going to eventually decrease to 0, in which case the string would be flat. And then it's going to become negative 1, in which case this pattern would invert. Okay? So what I see, if I watch um, these very fast oscillations and I sort of average over it like your eyes will do, you see just a blurry motion where there seems to be some uh, pattern on the string that looks like this. So I've drawn not only the amplitude, but I've drawn the negative amplitude. And that gives me the boundary for the, uh, the space that the string can oscillate within. So the maxima of that boundary are called antinodes. The minima are called nodes. So that's what happens when we have a boundary at one end of the string. More commonly, we have a boundary at both ends. Right? If you have a string, it needs to be held at both ends. And so there's actually a boundary of both ends. And so there's a constraint on both ends. If it's fixed on both ends, then what you get is any place where it's fixed, you necessarily have a node, a point where there can't be any displacement. So if it's fixed on both ends, then any standing wave produced has to have a node on both sides. And so the longest wavelength wave that can fit between these two fixed ends and have a zero crossing on both sides is one that goes from zero to a maximum to zero. We call that wavelength the fundamental wavelength, or we call that the frequency of the wave that produces that the fundamental frequency. And so the length of this string, if we call that length L, then if we take a snapshot of the wave, it's zero here, goes to a maximum value and back to zero. Other in other words, it goes through half of a full wavelength in a, in a length L. So length L is equal to half a wavelength. And this gives a relationship between the length of a string and the wavelength that will fit on it in the fundamental mode. It's also possible to get higher order modes. Let me demonstrate this 
again with the uh, the tube over here. So here's the fundamental mode that this string supports. It's got a node at my hand, and it's got a node at the other end. And it, right in the middle, there's one anti-node. Okay, if I shake my hand a little bit faster, eventually I can find the right frequency to set up the second harmonic, we call it. It's a uh, standing wave pattern that has one additional anti-node. I'm sorry, one additional node and one additional anti-node. So this is the second harmonic. Then this is, uh, this is the third harmonic. And I could keep adding more and more harmonics by uh, shaking my hand faster and faster. And the pattern would be more and more compressed. You have the second harmonic, the third harmonic, the fourth harmonic. In all cases, there has to be a node at either end. And for each higher harmonic, I can fit one more node in the middle, or in between the nodes, the ends. Okay, so here's the second harmonic. And if you follow, if you took a snapshot of the string, it would go from a zero here to a maximum to a zero at this node. And then it would continue down and have a, a maximum excursion in the opposite direction here and go back. And so we'd have one full wavelength between the nodes. So we'd say the length of the string is equal to one wavelength. And here it's written as two half wavelengths uh, because the third harmonic is going to have three half wavelengths. The fourth harmonic is going to have four half wavelengths. So each higher harmonic in this geometry has an extra half wavelength in it. So this is important because you saw that I had to shake the string faster and faster to get higher and higher harmonics. If I want shorter and shorter wavelengths, if I want shorter and shorter wavelengths on a string that has a certain velocity, I need to shake it at higher and higher frequencies. Well, those are the frequencies that you will hear if this, for example, is a guitar string. Right, so this is what happens in a guitar string. It's fixed on one end, and the other end is held in place by a finger sitting over a fret. And that sets the length of the string. When you pluck it, it oscillates and has a particular length that produces a series of resonant harmonics. The lowest order harmonic is the longest wavelength or the short lowest frequency. And that's what you hear as the, the note. And then the, these higher harmonics produce what we consider like the depth. They, they add some structure to the sound. Okay, so given the wavelengths, we can figure out what frequencies they occur at. So for a string that's fixed on both ends, we can draw a diagram. The string is length L. Its fundamental mode of oscillation has to have a node on both sides. And by fundamental, we mean the longest wave that will fit on this string. And so if it has to have a node on both sides. It can have one anti-node in between. is what's drawn on the board on the top. Therefore, 
can imagine that a full wave length looks like this, and that the string is only half a wavelength long. So L is equal to lambda over 2. That means the wavelength is 2L. And from this relationship here, we can find the frequency. So frequency is equal to V over lambda. So frequency is equal to V over 2L for the fundamental mode. If we consider the second harmonic, it adds, it has one more node in the middle. That means there's one more anti-node. Now we can see that there's one full wavelength along the length of the string. So the frequency of that is lambda over L. If I call this F1 and this F2, what I find is that F2 is equal to 2F1. And I could continue this logic drawing the next higher order mode. I could say the wavelength here is two-thirds the length of the string. So the wavelength is three-halves L. I'm sorry. Uh, wavelength is two-thirds L. So the third frequency is uh, 3V over 2L, or 3 times F1. So you see that there's a pattern. important, though, to be able to derive that pattern starting from a diagram, okay? because everything's going to change when we change one of the boundary conditions now. Let's consider what happens when one end is not fixed, but is free. We're going to have similar behavior, but this relationship is going to be different. It's very difficult to keep track of uh, how to use formulas to figure out the uh, wavelengths that are allowed on a string or the frequencies uh, supported by a string. It's much easier to start from a diagram and work out um, work out what the relationship should be. Okay, so let's consider a string of length L that is fixed on one side. So when I set up a standing wave here, is this going to be a node or an anti-node? It's going to be a node. And we'll let it be free on the other side. So is the other side going to be a node or an anti-node? It's an anti-node. It's an anti-node meaning a position of maximum displacement. This is free to, free to be pushed around. And so it will have a displacement that uh, makes it not a node. And in fact, the displacement will be a maximum because it'll be the sum of a forwards and backwards going wave that are both the same phase. So it'll produce a maximum displacement. Okay, so the fundamental waveform that fits the, on this string and 
matches these conditions is one that goes from 0 here to a maximum there. And so it's helpful if I draw the rest of this waveform. If, it, if the string were longer, it would look like this. And this is a, a quarter of the wavelength. It goes from 0 to a max, and then it would go from a max to 0, and it would go from 0 to a min, and then from a min to back to 0. So there'd be four segments, each of length L, to comprise a wavelength. So a wavelength is equal to 4L. So lambda is equal to 4L, where the frequency, which is V over lambda, is V over 4L. That's the wavelength and frequency of the fundamental mode. Okay, now we can draw the second harmonic. So the second harmonic it has, still has to have a node here and still has to have an anti-node there. But it's going to have one more zero crossing along the way. So for the second harmonic, the wavelength is going to be a little bit longer than the string, not four times longer. We can see that we can fit, if we break this up into quarters, we can fit three quarters of a wavelength on the string. We can fit three quarters of the second harmonic wavelength on a string of length L. Therefore, the wavelength is 4 thirds L. And the frequency of that wave is V over lambda 2, or 3V over 4L. If you look, that is three times greater than the fundamental. So that relationship is different. Right? When we had a node on both ends, the f there was a fundamental wavelength, and then the second harmonic had a frequency of twice that, where here it's three times that fundamental. So I'll draw one more. The next harmonic, the third harmonic, going to look like this. It's got one more zero crossing. And so now the wavelength of the third harmonic is from here to here. It's shorter than the length of the string. Again, it's useful to divide this wave into quarters. There's one, two, three, four, five quarters that fit on the string. So there are five quarter wavelengths that fit on the string. So the wavelength of the third harmonic is four-fifths L. Therefore, the frequency of the third harmonic is 5V over 4L. 
which is five times the fundamental. Okay, by the time you've done three, you can see the relationship on how to get um, the nth harmonic. Here's the first, the fundamental frequency. The second harmonic is at three times that. The third harmonic is at five times that. All the odd integer multiples. So the frequency of the nth harmonic then is going to be um, I'll write it as write it as 2n plus 1 times the fundamental. I have to make that a minus. So if I plug in n equals 2, I get 4 minus 1 is 3. If I plug in n equals 3, I get 6 minus 1 is 5. I can just empirically derive this formula. Okay, you can find that formula in the book. I recommend against trying to use that directly without driving it if necessary. Just because um, it's too easy to mistake this formula with this formula. Okay? And if you do, you won't get any partial credit on the test right, for using the wrong formula. If you derive it, you get points for each step of the derivation. And presumably, you'd get the answer right as well. It's determined by the geometry of the, the string. In this case, we have a wave on a string. So if the string is fixed on both ends, that means there should be a node on either end, which is this geometry, and gives rise to this relationship. Okay, so for strings, that's usually the case. Right, if you think about a guitar or a piano or sort of anything that you might expect there to be waves on strings in, Generally, those strings are held in place. We don't encounter this geometry a whole lot for strings. Because as I mentioned, it's kind of hard to mount a string so that it's free to move in one direction but constrained in the other. It's not impossible. It's just a little harder to do. But we do encounter this geometry a lot in uh, sound. So when you deal with uh, pressure waves, you can cause those pressure waves to resonate inside of a pipe and that pipe can have a closed end and an open end, which in the case of a string is analogous to a fixed end and a free end. Okay, so we'll use sort of this formula a lot when we deal with pressure waves in pipes. Any questions? Well, here the fundamental frequency. Yeah, so I'm, I'm breaking up the wavelength into quarters to make it easier to, to count, to see in the, the diagram how long a wave is. 
Okay, so waves are described by an amplitude, a wavelength, how long the wave is, which we use um, we use to determine this parameter k. K is two pi over the wavelength, and a frequency. Here we call omega and a phase angle. Um, they obey superposition. So if we have more than one wave reaching a point, we can describe what happens at that point just by adding up mathematically the effect of both waves. If I have two identical waves traveling in opposite directions, then there will be points where their displacement is a maximum. Those are called antinodes. Place where their displacement is a minimum, called nodes. And you should expect have problems on the exam where you're given a string with some boundary conditions for the sides and I ask you to identify what the third harmonic standing wave pattern looks like or to find the frequency or the wavelength of the third or fifth or some, some harmonics. You should be able to draw these diagrams. Okay, well we'll end a little early today. We'll do sound next week, next uh, Wednesday.